if the nature of sin is that we covet what we see, well, then the nature of the founder is to fix what we see. And that's very true with this next guest. Having spent a ton of money, time, effort, energy, wasted effort in his mind on benefits at his last startup, he decided to go fix that problem. So today, Tara Kalali, the founder, CEO of Lumity, sits down and talks benefits. Not just why benefits or how it's a necessary evil. He talks about how benefits can be used, should be used for the benefit of the organization, for the employees. How to spend the right amount, how to find it, how to manage it, and how it's not something that you can just slough off to HR. This is something the founder needs to own and needs to learn how to do it right here on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Very excited. I had a fantastic animated conversation with uh, Tarek. He really knows this stuff about benefits. But what I found was the conversation morphed, and I won't give too much away, but it morphed into a whole set of conversations beyond just benefits and what Lumity does for organizations, but really turned into a conversation on how do you manage all of the benefits across the board, those extra things that you're giving your employees, and how do you use that to leverage finding great employees, keeping great employees, and how do you do it without it becoming a huge sinkhole for your organization? Like I said, very great animated conversation coming your way. So sit back, take a listen as we talk benefits and more today on the podcast. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Very excited to have Tariq on the phone with us today. We are going to talk talent. We're going to talk recruiting. We are going to talk benefits. We're going to talk highly distributed teams. Who knows what the hell we're going to talk about, but we're going to talk. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining uh, first and foremost, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and why are you here? Hi, um, very glad to be here today. I'm Tariq Hilali. I am the co-founder and CEO of Lumity. Um, we are an imp- a data analytics company. Um, fundamentally, we use data uh, to help uh, employers and employees navigate the tortuous world of employee benefits. Um, that puts us squarely in the wonderful world of uh, HR and, um, and therefore squarely in the world of talent. Uh, so, you know, really everything we do is designed to help companies um, provide kind of quality and affordable benefits for the purpose of atta- attracting and retaining talent. So it's a very good fit kind of with what, uh, you know, uh, what you're discussing, which I think is a highly strategic area of HR. In terms of how did I find my way um, into the employee benefits yeah. space, I think it was painful personal experience is the short answer. <laughs> Um, I had started another company, uh, which was a fintech company called Motif Investing. We'd gotten to a couple hundred people. Um, Nominally, I was the final decision maker on benefits. And I can honestly tell you there was nothing I hated more every year. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'd look at the cost of them and they were a couple of million dollars a year. Um, I would try to figure out what is the right thing to do. And I had absolutely no tools on which to figure it out. Simple questions like for every dollar that I spend on benefits, how much is paid in claims for the benefit of the employees? Don't know. Um, How do my benefits compare to the company that I'm competing with for talent? 
don't know. Um, you know, how does my benefits cost compare to companies that look like me? Don't know. What you had was essentially, you know, an insurance broker with a large suitcase full of plans who just told you to pick the most expensive one. Yeah. And it struck me that this was weird because, you know, for all your other major expenses, you had a ton of data and tools and analytics and other things to which to base these decisions. But this was like this huge expenditure, which flies under the radar which, you know, was done in a very much kind of an inefficient old world relationship way. And I was just thinking, surely there has to be a better way. Then what happened was my wife became seriously ill. She had a series of uh, surgeries and that was the first time in our life we'd actually used benefits and having always chosen mm -hmm. the most expensive one and thought, damn, now we're actually going to need it. I'm glad I did that. Um, it turned out that A, it was very hard to navigate your way through the medical system and B, having done all of that and come to the end and looked at, okay, so, you know, what did the plan actually do? And had I, in fact, made the right decisions? It turned out that we had not. Um, it turned out that to actually navigate the world of benefits as an individual, you have to understand it at a very deep level. And you also have to be able to build a large spreadsheet uh, and figure out under various circumstances what is likely to be the right answer. Um, you know, the thing I would liken it to most is taxes. Um, if you think about it, in a year, there are two times where someone is trying to give you money on average, not in every case, but in most cases. Mm -hmm. The first is your tax return, uh, where about 80 to 90% of people get a refund, uh, yet they don't file till the last minute. And the second is employee benefits, where your employer is giving you this really valuable and important thing at a drastically and heavily subsidized rate and people don't make a decision to the last minute. And they have yeah. one thing in common. They're complicated and people don't know what to do. So they just put it off. So while TurboTax existed on the tax side, um, nothing really existed to help employees on, on their side, on the actual decisioning front. And on the employer side, it was incredibly inefficient as well. So, you know, in looking at, um, you know, what... Uh, you know, where you can actually make a difference in the world. Um, you know, it struck me that here is this really, really important thing, um, which for the average family is probably a top five expenditure um, that you really have no help with and neither does the employer. And unless both of them get it right, it ends up, you know, really kind of costing you um, a lot of money. Let me dimension it um, for a family, an individual, and it, a health plan probably costs them $500 a month. Um, now that can be split between the employer and the employee, but it doesn't really much matter because ultimately if the employer is paying it on your behalf, it's coming out of your total compensation, right? I mean, because people don't look at salaries, they look at what is their total cost of that person. Um, if you're a family, it can be 1500 to 1800 a month. So if you look at the average family, how many of them, how many expenses they have that are greater than eighteen to $20,000? Right. In Silicon Valley, certainly their house. Maybe private school fees if they happen to have it, but your car's not going to cost you that much. Mm -hmm. There is almost nothing else that will cost you that much. So here it's top two, top three. But now if you go to Iowa, your house may very well not cost you that much, but your medical insurance costs you even more because the single determinant of medical costs, biggest determinant, is urban versus rural. If you live in a rural area, your medical costs are going to be way higher than if you live in San Francisco and New York. 
And the reason is because there's no competition in those places. If there's one hospital within 50 miles, that hospital can charge whatever they like. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, the thinking was, if we can actually help with this, then you're really helping make a difference to the lives of individuals and families, because this is a big deal to keep more money in their pockets, essentially. Well, it's, it's interesting, your, your story here, too. So, you know, in the, in the world of sin, right, we covet what we see, right? And you're not the first founder to come in and say, I want to fix what's out there, the thing that's causing me the most pain, the most anxiety. And so you had this personal experience where you said, hey, the system that's in place today failed me, didn't give me what I needed, how I needed it, and caused me real angst as a prior founder. And so you went out and solved that one problem, which is, again, I think, always interesting from a founder's perspective of you're going to go solve that thing that's right in front of you. The, um, the piece that I want to explore a little bit and spend some time with you on is, so other than just the, the benefit of benefits, I, I think one of the things that, that founders really struggle with is using benefits as an actual benefit, a lever to bring in top talent. You know, they might think of this as uh, the cost of maintenance, just like I got to have a roof over my head and I have to have phone lines. But I think you're looking at this as a strategic way to bring in the right kind of talent in organizations. And how do you think about finding, keeping, maintaining, retaining good talent? Right. And so I think it differs as companies grow, right? If you look at benefits, um, you know, California is one of three states, I suppose, where um, the inflection point in employee benefits between what they call small group insurance, which is um, age-banded, putting you in kind of the average rates for the state versus large group where the group stands alone. In California, that delineation is at 100, um, but in 47 other states, it's actually at 50. Um, you know, what you do when you're under 50 or under 100, depending on where you are, differs from when you're over 100. When you're under 100, um, you know, the criticality of benefits is that when you are talking to a prospective candidate, it is super important to be able to answer the question that they have, which is, you know, at a high level, what kind of a plan do you have? And then how much is it going to cost me? Right? I mean, if you think about it, that's what you think about. You say, okay, you know, what sort of exposure do I have? And then how much is my share of that total cost? Um, What we see among startups tends to be one of two things. Either they'll say they pay 100% of everything, which is great, um, but can cause real sustainability problems for you down the line. Yes, of course. Um, And not really a great idea in the sense that if you have somebody, you hire somebody who has a spouse at Google or at Facebook, or if they are under the age of 26 and they have a sibling, then they're going to be on their parents' plan. Now, if I offer you free insurance and say, hey, you know, no matter how much house insurance you have or no matter how much car insurance you have, I'm going to give you more for free, you're going to take it, right? I mean, right. why not? You can't really have too much of it. Uh, functionally, it's useless to you because it's impossible to really coordinate benefits between medical plans, but you'll take it anyway. It costs the company money. It does nothing for the employee. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. And, um, and as you get larger, it also becomes prohibitively expensive. So, you know, (laughs) some people take that perspective without understanding what the downstream consequences are. Other people take the view, the prevailing view, the conventional wisdom, which is, well, the company's going to cover 90% of employee and 50% of family. 
right? Okay. But then the issue is if you're age banded so that how many children you have determines what it costs, how old you are determines what it costs, how much spouse, what zip code you're in. As a practical matter, your recruiter has no way of being able to tell the recruit how much the benefits would cost. So what is a very simple question has a very convoluted answer, right? Um, Because you'd have to look it up off an aging table. You'd have to ask them how old are their kids, how old are their spouses, and what zip code they live in. I mean, it's impractical uh, and and kind of ridiculous. And you only do that at the point where you've almost basically accepted the alleged job and you're just kind of making sure it's not something outrageous. Yeah. Um, The alternative would be to say, okay, you know, it's going to cost $50 a month if you're an employee. It's going to cost 100 if you're an employee plus one, which could be a spouse or a child. And it will be, say, 250 if you're an employee plus a family. I don't really care what zip code you live in. I don't care how many kids you have. I'm not going to ask you personal questions. I'm just going to set that amount. Now, that means I'm going to pay a little bit more for person A than person B. But from a company perspective, it all averages out. From an employee perspective, very early on in the recruiting process, you can create a simple one-sheet page where you say, here are the plans, here are the four or five parameters that matter, here are the benefits that we offer, and here's what your monthly cost is. Now, if you can send that to a recruit when they ask you, you know, what are the benefits, and you could just send them a PDF of a one-pager that tells them everything they need to know in a very simple format, it allows them to make a decision, number one, But number two, I think it just creates a better impression of the company as a whole. It makes you feel larger than you are. It Mm -hmm. makes you feel like a larger company that they may have dealt with before, as opposed to you sound very disorganized when you say, let me go look at my age table to figure out where you you fall on it. Yeah, that doesn't sound reassuring. It doesn't. And, you know, those are the two prevailing models that, that founders use, and neither one of them um, are, are very good. Now, when you get over a hundred, then you get HR people in place and there you have a different set of issues as a founder, right? Um, number one, when you get over a hundred people, you will start to hire middle management in place and you obviously will hire the best people that you can, but you have to understand that their incentives differ a little bit from yours right? As a founder who's responsible for raising every dime of capital that the company has to get uh, or has to raise, and as a founder who gets diluted every time you do a capital raise, I mean, you you quickly learn capital raises are not, you know, signs of achievement. Revenue is, customers are, profitability eventually are. You want to be parsimonious with your capital. So you want to basically provide good benefits, but you don't want to do it in a cost inefficient way. Then you look at the flip side of what are the incentives of an HR person. An HR person, you know, and and, and HR professionals are very good, but everybody ultimately reacts to their incentives within an organization. And the incentives within an organization for HR is if I make a change and it goes well, I get a pat on the back. If I make a change and something goes wrong, I get fired. What incentive do you have to actually make a change under that circumstance? So one of the things that I advise founders to do from a benefits perspective, but also more generally as the companies get larger, is you have to find a way to not micromanage every last thing. But you also have to find a way to kind of impose your your values 
on the various functions that you have to combat the agency problem that you get as you layer up, right? And by that, I mean, you know, it may be that the HR person has no incentive to make changes, even if it's for the best, because, you know, they get a pat on the back or they get fired. You have to create a culture where that's not so. You have to give them, you know, the air cover to be able to do that. And that means that you can't not pay attention to it. A lot of times we find that as companies get larger, um, you know, the founders, even some of the senior executives don't pay attention to benefits um, because they figure that's what other people are there for. But what they don't realize is their incentives differ. Well, and this is, this is a really good point because this is something that I've heard sort of time and time again of, of the founder, the early executives really uh, establishing the culture of the company. And to be really clear, it's, it's setting up the philosophy, the dogma, the, the DNA of what the company looks like, and then taking responsibility for it going forward. Uh, a founder, as we know, and you are a testament to this, right? You get pulled like taffy in a million different directions. And so if this isn't something that you necessarily like to do, then thinking about benefits, thinking about compensation, thinking about the structure in which you bring people on board might fall to the wayside or might get delegated down to a variety of different people. And your point is spot on. If you aren't incentivizing those people correctly, if you're not creating the structure to have them do the things that you want them to do, they're going to be driven by either avoidance or fear. If you are not thinking about it in the right way, you're going to make decisions for your people, your talent, your recruiting that aren't in your wheelhouse, that aren't your will, aren't what you want to divide a company to be. And suddenly you're going to find a culture that's been created for your company that's different than what your expectations are. No, most definitely. And look, um, speaking about the technology industry and Silicon Valley in particular, people are hyper-focused on revenue, right? Because the perception... (laughs) somewhat correctly, is that revenue growth is the cure to all ills. Um, And there is some truth to that, right? I mean, empirically, if you look at it, in a world where capital is plentiful and easily available, then, you know, revenue growth is the name of the game, right? If from that perspective, I understand that. I mean, I'm part of that (laughs) world, so I get it. Um, But what I think founders have to be cognizant of is that if you ignore cost completely, it can do very bad things to your culture. When small companies start acting like large companies, um, you are not particularly likely to succeed, right? Because if you think about a startup, is a startup is an ant who is dancing around an elephant. And the elephant is invariably Microsoft or Oracle or, or Cisco, whoever, right? I mean, these are great companies, but they mm-hmm. do have the advantages of size and you're never going to beat them at that which means you have to beat them at the disadvantages of size, which is you have to be more nimble, you have to be more hungry, you have to be more maneuverable. When you end up not caring about cost, when you end up you know, with, and we see this sometimes, we see companies, startups, who are still consuming capital with walls of gift cards so that if somebody goes out to get a Starbucks, there is a company provided gift card to pay for it. Um, you know, <laughs> Okay, great. I mean, you know, I understand that if you look at it in a vacuum, maybe you say it's not a big expense and, you know, it makes people feel good. But what does that say about the overall culture of the company, though? 
what does that do? Are people really going to be looking at trying to find cost-efficient solutions to things? Are people really going to maintain that kind of hunger? Are you really going to maintain the urgency you need to outmaneuver these larger companies? Not if you start acting like them. And to be fair, even many of those don't do that. Right. No, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Well, it, it goes back to what you were saying a little bit earlier of even, you know, the, the idea of um, a, a founder coming in and saying, I'm going to have the best program for my people. I'm going to pay for everything. And, yeah. and that sounds like a very noble idea. And maybe that's something that you can aspire to. But to start off with that, um, is that the right way for you to manage your expenses? And is your employee getting the actual benefit out of that? Or is that just wasted money? And to a large degree, it's probably wasted money and it's unrealized wasted money. Yeah, we see this all the time. I'll give you an example. We have companies and you see them spending two and a half million dollars on benefits. And then you, you, you look at their benefits program, you analyze it, and you realize that they could probably save half a million dollars on the cost of their benefits with absolutely no compromise in coverage. So that means the plans are functionally as strong as before. Yeah. But there's a half million dollar saving. And, you know, depending on what the executives or the founders say, and I've heard both, I've seen HR teams say, absolutely, if that is there, we are going to go for it. Either because, you know, you know, I don't care how successful a startup you are. If you're talking about forty or fifty thousand dollars a month, it makes a difference. Of course, yeah. um, either because of that, or because the employees are paying twenty-five percent of the total cost, right? And now you could save somebody fifty to a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. And then I've seen other companies where they say, "Nope, you know, we realize that of the three hundred people in the company." two or three of them will lose their therapists. We care about our employees. We're just not going to do that. And what the founders said is there is, well, you know, if we get five or 6%, I'm okay with that. You know, the most important thing is not to disrupt the employees. So that's where that's coming from in the latter case. Mm -hmm. In the former case, um, it's coming from, well, if we can do better, we should, right? Um, Now, I understand that out of 300 people, two or three of them may lose their therapist, and that kind of sucks. And if there's something that we can do for them legally, we should. Um, but I also understand that, you know, that could be 50 to 200 bucks a month in reduced costs every month for my employees. And it speaks to the essence of what benefits are, right? They are group health insurance. They are there for the benefit of the group, yeah. not the individual. Now, from an HR perspective, where HR has a really hard time, is that even if they take that position, which is the correct position that is for the good of the group, and then you have one executive come yelling at them saying, I lost my therapist or I lost my doctor and this is ridiculous, and then they get in trouble. You've completely discouraged them from doing something better for the group. And so I think for founders, one of the most important things that they can do is that they have to realize that, you know, with respect to something like benefits, the point is not necessarily to appease the one at the expense of the many. In a group health insurance format, the point is to do right by the group. And if that means that one or two people get bent out of shape, you must support your team to do the right thing, 
even if those people are, are loud, noisy, and in some cases, very unpleasant. Because I will point out one thing to you. These companies that bend over backwards to accommodate these one or two people find out that these same people then go leave to join another company. And at no point do they ask which insurer do they have, right? Right. I, nobody yes. asks that question. Um, yet they act like it's an entitlement to have it within the, their own companies. And so I do think that has to come from the top, honestly. Um, it's, it's, it, culture's important. It's not about the individual. It's about the group. Well, and I'm, I'm seeing a couple of themes, you know, emerge here of, of how to think about benefits holistically. Um, yes, you're managing costs. Yes, you're, you're managing the expectations of your employees. But you're also at the same time um, motivating and empowering HR you're setting precedent for establishing the culture, the norms within your organization. You're taking care of your employees as a group. And I think you're spot on. It's, it's always those one or two petulant children that are in the organization that cry and scream and moan. When things get rough, those are the first people to leave every single time. And so while it may feel like you're addressing their issue today, all you're really doing is enabling some of that behavior, disrupting the rest of your organization, um, disrupting your culture, uh, demotivating your HR staff, and for a couple of people that probably won't stick it out another six months. Yeah, I think HR is a very tough job, and you mm-hmm. really have to support them as a founder, right? Either support them or just don't have them because it is a Great tough point. job. Their job is to help kind of do a bunch of things that are really important but really hard to do. For example, compensation. It is the ultimate nightmare subject within any organization. (laughs) And especially startups. I mean, the hardest thing I think to do in a company is to take, you know, this company that's a complete wild west when it gets to close to 100 people and then impose a compensation structure on it that makes sense. I mean, talk about the political hot potato from hell. That's it. If you're going to do it, you have to support them. Similarly with benefits, if you're going to have the philosophy that it is the good of the group and not the one, then you have to support them. The thing that founders have to realize for better and for worse, and it is most definitely both, is that you have a very big stick, which means you have to be judicious about where you use it. Hmm. But when you use it, swing hard. (laughs) Right. <laughs> that might be the pull quote for the interview right there. You said swing hard. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are times where you just have to make a decision. You're not going to win any popularity contest for it. Yeah. But, you know, usually founders are at the highest of the executive levels. Usually because they are the largest shareholders, their interests are most aligned with the company. As much as you may want to pass off the, some of these decisions to other people, particularly the unpleasant ones, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. They, they are best, in some cases, made by you because your interests align best with that of the overall company. Well, and, and one of the things, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull off this topic just a little bit because this was so fascinating when we were talking about it in prep, and it does, it does play a role in here. Um, one of the key takeaways that I, I got from this part of the conversation was really the support of the HR function. I think... A lot of founders, for a variety of reasons, and, and some of them very good reasons, tend to um, tend to let the HR person run HR 
but might might do so blindly without really establishing the culture and the direction that they want to see HR run. And so they sort of uh, they turn it over to another organization instead of having a stronger, heavier hand in it. And so to your point of really being empowering, but also being aligned with HR, I think is really key. Yes. And you see, you know, if you think about HR, HR went through iterations, right? It used to be called HR 10 years ago. And then it started to be called people five years ago. Right. And now some of them are called culture or people and culture. And I have no problem with calling HR people. I have no problem with calling HR talent, though I would argue talent is a subset of people Mm -hmm. because then there's people ops on the other side. But I do have a problem with founders outsourcing their cultures. Yes. Because you are responsible for your culture and nobody you can hire is ever going to be as responsible for that as you are because the thing you have to realize as founders is every second you are within the company environment, you are being watched. People are incredibly sensitive to what you do. You know, when we have big customer wins here, people look at me and say, you should be more fired up for the team. And then similarly, if we have a bad day and it happens, people look at me and say, you know, this is terrible. What are we going to do? You know, you shouldn't look so unconcerned. And the answer is, look, you know, I suppose this is my investment background coming back. If there's one thing I believe in life, it's mean reversion. If things are going well today, something bad will happen tomorrow and vice versa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that is my personal belief and it helps me through those moments. But what I also know is that is if the, you know, if you look panicked and you snap at someone or you do something stupid at that moment, you will make everybody nervous. They are very sensitive to what you do. Um, you know, if you go around telling us we're the greatest thing since sliced bread, we're the best thing ever, as opposed to this is great, but you know, we can do even better tomorrow then people will become complacent. You know, the hardest thing I would say about being a founder, and there are many hard things, it's how to understand that, you know, every moment you are within that company environment, you are being watched and how to carry your persona in a manner that creates the right culture. And I'm not perfect at it by any means. Um, you know, I am false as anyone does, but I am aware of it. And that is probably the hardest thing. If you're in an office 12 or 15 hours a day and you're working with people all the time and they are all very attuned to everything you do, that is unbelievably difficult. It's just a little bit of pressure. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and it's one of those things you can get nine times, 90% of it right. But if you get 10% of it wrong, yeah. You're gone. And there's nobody you can hire who will make up for that. Nobody. Um, you, the culture's yours. And if you want to be one, uh, a founder, then you're going to have to take that responsibility. So I always find it amusing when I see these titles like VP of people and culture, because the culture belongs with the founder or it belongs with the CEO or both. But yeah. if that person is not paying attention to it, you probably don't have a very good culture. Well, and that's, and that's spot on. And, and I loved your insights too about the, the founder and the founder's persona and the, the aura around the, the founder. So we've heard from a couple of that have come on the podcast that have said, you know, from the second they walk in the room until they get to their office in the morning, that is being read by the employees as you walk past them to determine what kind of mood that person's in during the day and how people react to that. And so 
they've been very aware of, you know, every walk, every step, everything they do first thing in the morning as they're coming in helps set the tone for how the office is going to behave. And so they're aware of that and what they're carrying on their shoulders. And to your point, I don't think anybody's perfect at it, right? Nobody's going to get it right all the time, but being aware of it and knowing that that's the ripple effect that happens within your organization is the, the first logical step. Yeah. And, and it requires a lot of energy. I mean, you know, uh, I think the best way to describe founders is you are selling 24 hours a day because you are selling customers. You are selling talent, talent that you're hoping to recruit, but also talent that you already have to stick around. And then you are selling investors because you're trying to get investment capital, right? Yeah. But, you know, you are always selling somebody. And, uh, you know, that selling for those of us who've done it is exhausting. I mean, you know, you walk into a meeting, a big sales meeting, and people are looking to you, then you have to be on, right? You've got to right. be on and you've got to be ready to go. And then you come out of it, you go sit down at your desk and you work on something else. And that too is there. And you don't even really have the option, I don't think, of retreating into an office either. Because, you know... It, it's not the days of, you know, the, there's founder or the CEO being in the corner office cloistered away. They're long since gone. You're sitting out on the floor with everybody else. Yeah. Which is good, but it just means it's even that much harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of constant um, pressure and being aware of it. But again, also um, as a founder, realizing the moves you make, the steps you take, how you act, how you behave, how you interact, again, have that ripple effect for, for good or bad. And as a founder, being keenly aware of the signals that you're sending, not just with your actions, but with your words, your deeds, how you carry yourself, are your shoulders hunched over, are they straight back, is your head held high, or you, you know, crouch down ready to break into tears, right? And everything in between and, and just being aware of what that means for the rest of the organization. And again, I, I, it sounds straightforward. And to hear it sounds, well, yes, of course, that makes sense. But I also think it's one of those things where most people don't necessarily think of it through these, this lens and through these terms. They just think I'm the founder and I'm going to ride the highs and I'm going to suffer the lows. But they're also stewarding the ship forward. And, and that's a really big challenge. Yes, it is. And the other thing is, as these companies get older, um, obviously people will join and people will leave. Um, the continuity is provided by a very small group. Yeah. Um, and that group starts with the founders again. So um, I do think it's really important. I think it's also important to know you've never nailed it because as you go through these different stages of growth, the entire characteristic of the company changes. As I tell my team here, if I want to put a, you know, a 50 person process in place on where 20 people will never make it to 50. If I want to put a 30 person process in place on where 20 people will probably make it to 30, but then it's going to be outdated by the time we get to 40. Mm -hmm. Everyone will say, the place sucks, there's no structure. <laughs> then you put in 50, then you blow through that. And so it goes on. I mean, you know, you a lot of times people, companies ask, you know, what is the right amount of structure in a startup? And the answer, I think, is subjective in nature, but it's as little as you absolutely need. But you do need some, right? You can't be too structured, but you can't be too unstructured either. 
Yeah. And just recognize it's constantly changing. And that is part of the culture because the company is growing. And you have to get your team on board with that. You see a lot of people, particularly during boom times, join startups from larger companies. And they will say things like, oh, this place sucks. There's no training here. Oh, you didn't <laughs> tell me exactly what to do. Um, and the answer is, no, you don't have the kind of training that you have in much larger companies. But that's where culture comes back to. You know, you need to create a culture and a group of people who are okay with that, accepting of that. And in fact, the reason they're here is because of that and view it as this gives me an opportunity to express myself and shine, not I'm going to fail because you don't have this. Oh, Derek, those are, those are great points. And, and I think that's a good place for us to sort of jump off and leave. What I, what I loved about this conversation and was so enjoyable in talking with you is we, we started off on a track on benefits and we started talking about talent and recruiting. And what it led us to was a conversation where the founder is uh, really responsible for culture and setting the culture of the organization. It was a conversation around helping the HR organization understand the role and its place and being supported in the right way. And then how to think about bringing talent on and really managing your costs and what those signals are for the expectations of the organization. And we covered all of that in about 20, 25 minutes. So kudos yeah. for us for, for, <laughs> for covering a lot of ground, but this has been a really enjoyable conversation and I've been fascinated by it. And I, I'm confident that the founders and other entrepreneurs that are listening to this are going to pull some really good takeaways from this. So thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate mm, My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Like I said, I loved listening to Tarek uh, have this conversation. What started off as a pretty direct, straightforward conversation around the idea of benefits morphed and turned into something much deeper and I think much more endemic a problem for most founders is how they manage this entire process and this belief that you can give most of this off to the HR organization and how a founder really needs to set the tone, the vision, the direction across the board for benefits and through HR. Like I said, fully animated conversation. I loved having him on and having this chat with him. If you'd like to follow him, and I suggest you do, it's pretty straightforward. You can follow him on Twitter, and that's T-A-R-I-Q-H-I-L-A-L-Y. T-A-R-I-Q-H-I-L-A-L-Y. And for me, I'd love to have you subscribe to the podcast. Just click that little button. Also, to subscribe to the website at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co, the place where exceptional founders grow. Thanks again for listening. Look forward to talking to you again next week. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.